0: to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. And as you are turning there, I wonder I wonder what you think about, what you might what might have crossed your mind when you hear the word wrestling. Wrestling. Some of you no doubt just visualized Hulk Hogan or maybe Andre the Giant. Macho Man Randy Savage, remember him? Snap it to a Slim Jim. Or how about Rick Flair? Or now that I've said those names, you're going to visualize them for the next few minutes, right? We might also think of the Olympic Games, what some people might be so bold to call real wrestling. I don't know. But uh, you know, we're looking forward to the Olympic Games this, this summer, the 2020 Olympic Games in 2021, right? I enjoy watching those and cheering our, our country on in the Olympics. But one person that comes to mind when I think of wrestling is my brother-in-law, Troy. My sister, her name's Michelle, and she married she married Troy when I was in high school. Uh, she's six, year older, six years older than I am. But after they got married, they moved down to Virginia. And so one of the first times my mom and dad and I went down to visit them in their, their new home, their first home, Troy and I were just joking around one evening, and somehow the joking turned into a challenge, a challenge to wrestle. In my youth and ignorance... I challenged my brother-in-law Troy to a wrestling match. Once. Never again. Uh, Troy had wrestled at a, a pretty high level in a big high school in Toledo. At the time, there I believe I don't know if it's still there or not, but at the time there was a picture of him hanging in the gym for all to see. I probably should have paid a little better attention to the fact that there was a picture of him hanging in the gym and specifically for wrestling. Uh, there in that gym. But, you know, I, I was a pretty athletic guy, quite a bit taller than Troy, never to mind the low center of gravity and all that that he has. But, you know, I was taller, pretty athletic. He hadn't wrestled in years, right? How bad could it be? It was bad, very bad. As soon as he realized he had the green light, I saw the light turn on in his eyes. Uh-oh. He realized he had the green light, and I was down faster than I knew what happened. I was pinned to that floor of the living room. In pain, my limbs were twisted in ways I didn't know they could go. Troy had prevailed. He prevailed, and in such a way that I never even considered asking for another rematch. Uh, In a wrestling match, the one pinned to the ground at the end, the one who can't move, who, who can't get up, The one maybe who has a hip out of socket or something crazy like that. They're the loser, right? Not today. Because today in Genesis 32, Jacob is going to wrestle all night. His hip is going to be put out of socket. And he's going to be told, You have wrestled with God and with man and have prevailed. There must be way more going on here than just a wrestling match. Uh, So let's look into God's word today and see what we can learn uh, from it. Uh, Just to remind us as we get going, uh, just to remind us where we are in the big picture uh, of the unit of, of this book of Genesis. Remember Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. He was promised the blessing, the covenant of Abraham by God specifically. God had declared to Jacob in chapter 28, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, God said, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the nations, the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. God says, I am with you, Jacob, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And God had told Isaac and Rebekah that this promise was for Jacob while he was still in his mother's womb, along with his twin brother Esau. They were both in the womb. None of them had done a thing yet. And God said, this promise is for Jacob. He's chosen Jacob. This was given to him. And then Jacob stole it anyways, didn't he? It was given to him and he stole it anyway. Esau was more than a little angry about what Jacob did and, and he had a mind to kill him as soon as their father died. And so mom, Rebecca, she put together a plan to get Isaac to agree to send their son Laban, uh, send their son to Laban uh, from their own people to get a wife or four. And now Jacob has spent the last 20 years working and getting tricked by Laban. And Jacob, the trickster, getting tricked. And by the way, Jacob was over 40 years old when he left for Paddan Aram. And so Jacob is now a little over 60. Sometimes I forget reading through this. Jacob is over 60 years old now. Uh, But 20 years have gone by, and even though Laban has been doing everything in his power, everything in Laban's power, to use Jacob for his own selfish advantage, God has been and is blessing Jacob, just like he said he would. And there's nothing Laban could do about it. Just as God decreed So God preserved Jacob. God has blessed Jacob. God is bringing a nation into being through Jacob And God has also promised to bring Jacob home safely And and even though Jacob was sure that laban was no longer a threat. He's in the past in the rear view now Now there was esau ahead Esau to contend with and it's been 20 years But was esau over what jacob had done? Was jacob truly safe to return to his home? Was God going to be faithful to his promise? And here's where we begin to read. Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, leaving Laban behind, and all that God had blessed him with was coming with him back home. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp! And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Uh, Mahanaim means two camps. Two camps. Now, why would the idea of two camps, why do you think that would come into Jacob's mind when he sees this camp of angels? You might remember the last time Jacob was given the ability to see angels, it it was right before he left the promised land. Remember on that ladder, the angels coming back and forth from God, ready to minister. It was that last night before he left, and now this night when he's ready to come back, he gets to see them again. So in Jacob's mind... This is a second camp of angels. And Jacob is amazed. As far as he can tell, there are now two places that angels can minister on the earth. Can you believe it? But what do we know? What do we know? God has. What has God promised to Jacob? He said in chapter 28, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Was there a time when God wasn't working in Jacob's life? Were there only two camps? Or was that ladder or that stairway that Jacob saw, was that truly just stationary? Was that stuck in that place and could go nowhere else? And Jacob is learning that God is far more mobile, like everywhere present, and far more powerful than he'd realized. And God was not restricted to the promised land. God was not a regional God who could only do what he did in this little area of the Middle East. And then once once Jacob crossed the river and headed into Laban's territory, now Laban's gods held sway, and God couldn't overpower them there. But when they were—no. God is the one true God. Psalm 34, 7 promises, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. In Psalm 91, 11, and 12, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. According to God's word, there are a whole lot more than two camps of angels, aren't there? In verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, of the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, like my master Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I might, might find favor in your sight. Somewhere along the way, Jacob learned the last 20 years had been very, fairly prosperous for Esau as well. And he knew where he, Esau and his family, his house, and and all that he had were located. And it wasn't in the promised land. Esau wasn't keeping things going for Jacob to come back. He had already left. God promised that land to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants. And Esau was already gone. So think about this now. The way Jacob is traveling into the promised land, with Esau not even there anymore, what would old Jacob have done? Jacob the trickster. Jacob the the conniver, trying to get away with whatever he can get away with. If Esau was long gone and nowhere to be seen, what would that trickster have done? I think he would have stalled. He would have held that meeting off as long as possible. If he had a direct access to where he was headed and Esau was nowhere to be seen, great. I think that's what Jacob would have done. But what did he do? Remember, Jacob is changing. Jacob is growing. He sent people to Esau as Jacob heads towards the land He sends people around to Esau to let him know he's coming To let him know he's returned and that he's returned with a bunch of stuff He didn't have to give Esau a list of his possessions, but he did so Jacob is being straightforward and honest with Esau and proactively so that's kind of weird for him, isn't it? Like I said, he's changing and growing Even in calling Esau my lord I think what Jacob is doing here, even though they both know by now that God has promised the blessing to Jacob, by calling Esau his Lord, Jacob is acknowledging that things didn't go the way they were supposed to, culturally speaking, and that he didn't obtain the birthright and the blessing honestly. Uh, Jacob is the owner of the the blessing and birthright, and there's nothing he could have ever done to earn it, and there's nothing he could do to lose it. God has spoken, and it's done. It's done. But I think he's trying to make things right with Esau. You now, before, Esau never had the ability to say to Jacob, I know this is what God is doing. It's yours. It was taken from him by deceit. And now Jacob is giving him this opportunity. And the messengers, verse 6, return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. That's good. And he's coming to meet you. Could be good. And there are 400 men with him. oh Uh-oh. <laughs> And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He's trying to do this the right way, and now look. Esau's coming with a small army. And so it says he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two camps. Remember Mahanaim? Two camps. Thinking, Jacob's thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. That's kind of a sad plan, isn't it? especially considering half of his family is in this one and half of his family is in this one. He's just trying to save 50% at this point. Back then, 400 men was the standard size of a militia, so Jacob wasn't crazy to think that this didn't look good. And even though he'd walked into this new chapter and, and, and with what looked like a great deal of faith and encountering, being encouraged by these angels and and seeing this great deal of honesty from Jacob, now, though, with these circumstances looking the way they were, Jacob is being put to the test, isn't he? He's being put to a a hard test. And instead of two camps reminding him that God was with him to keep him safe, Jacob now divides his own camp into two in an effort to preserve himself, to save at least half of the people or his possessions. Remember, Jacob is still growing. We, We shouldn't expect him to be handling all of these things just perfectly all the time. But there is something that we get to see him do now next as he continues to grow. Uh, Verse 9, he begins to pray. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What a prayer. What a prayer. Uh, In this prayer, what do we see Jacob doing? There's at least four things, and I might add a fifth that I forgot about in the first message, so you guys get bonus material today, okay? But, But first, first, Jacob appeals to God's past faithfulness. He calls God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Jacob recounts God has been faithful to them, and that's what Jacob needs right now. He also recounts how God has been faithful to him thus far. And he appeals to God's faithfulness. Second, Jacob appeals to God's personal promise to him. God's personal promise that he gave directly to Jacob. And you notice he does it twice. He bookends this prayer with these appeals to God's promises. Uh, Jacob says to God... God, you promised that you were going to bring me home safely, that you would do me good, that my descendants would survive. Please fulfill your promises. It is super important to note here that these are actual promises that God made to Jacob. I'm reiterating this point. Jacob did not get in a tight spot that was not comfortable to him. And then think of some promises that he thinks God ought to have made And appealed that God keeps his promises. Does that make sense? In such a way when we redefine the promises of God to maybe our specific situation in any in any moment That we might even think that we are uh, Vindicated in being angry At God For not doing what we think he ought to do Jacob is appealing to specific God promises that God made to him Okay third Jacob acknowledges his unworthiness and his inability. Even though Jacob had already tried to do some work on his own. Remember, Jacob has often thought of his own ability and his worthiness to get stuff done. Jacob is changing. He humbly admits to God that he doesn't have what it takes to save the day here. He knows that God's promises were rooted in grace And not earned. He was in the womb. God has done this by grace. He has not earned this. He is unworthy. And he knows that he is helpless without God. Now if you think about this, that sounds an awful lot like the gospel. Doesn't it? A good thing for all of us to realize and remember. Fourth, Jacob honestly expresses his fear. It it wouldn't have done Jacob any good to try to keep up appearances before the Lord. God knows our hearts better than we do. Tell him. Tell him. When Peter had walked on the water with Jesus and he started sinking, remember, he, by faith, he stepped out on that water, he was walking there with, with the Lord, and then the waves came and he looked elsewhere and he remembered where he was and, and he was whoosh. And I don't think Peter was like on an elevator going downhill. I'm thinking, you know, water. What would you do if you're standing on water? Whoosh! And he's struggling. You know, I don't think Peter in that moment went, dearest Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, I have a request to make of thee. You know, I don't think he was trying to be all fancy and keeping up appearances. He said, save me! Right? With like bubble noises in your mouth as you say it. He was in a bad spot. That wasn't pretty. That wasn't a pretty moment as far as what we might like to think it looks like when a person prays, but it was a gloriously beautiful moment because Peter knew he had nothing that he could do to save himself and only Christ could save him. That sounds like the gospel too, doesn't it? Uh, Jacob honestly expresses where he is and he cries out to God because of it. Psalm 18 says this, I love you, Lord. Oh, Lord, my strength The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Meaning, I am none of those things for myself. And he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved, rescued from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, the grave, entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. God knows better than any of us just how badly we need him. We need him desperately. We need him desperately. Be honest with him. Church, cry out to God. He is, as it says in Psalm 46, a very present help in trouble. And then just real briefly, I think a fifth thing we see in here. Do you remember what Abraham did when he had Sarah in Egypt? What did he call Sarah? His beautiful bride? His sister. What did Isaac call uh, Rebekah when Abimelech was there? His sister. Protect me, throw her out there. What has Jacob just prayed for? He's worried about his own safety, but what does he also pray for? The women and the children. He's thinking of something outside of himself. That's love. Jacob is growing. Jacob is growing by God's grace. Now, let's keep reading and see what happens next. Verse 13 is where we are. So he, Jacob, stayed there that night, and from from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. A gift fit for a king, they say, I wouldn't have a clue what to do with it, but a gift fit for a king. Uh, these he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and, and put a space between drove and drove, meaning just separate the herds out, space them out. And the idea is that pile of animals after pile of animals are just going to keep coming at Esau. Just enough time in between for him to think about what just happened. And then there's another one. And then what is he di- And then there's another one. You get the idea? He's going to kill him with kindness here. This is what Jacob is doing. And then it says, um, verse 17, he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? You, Where are you going? And whose are is ahead of you? Then you shall say, Jacob is telling his servants to, t- to say to Esau, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. So Jacob's servants are to call Esau their Lord. And moreover, he, Jacob, is behind us. He's there. He's coming. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, this is what Jacob's idea was, I may appease him. With the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Uh, Again here, we see this kind of like admixture of Jacob kind of planning and scheming, but also him being honest and trying to do things right. There's a battle going on even in Jacob's heart as we see these things happening. But he's telling Esau he's coming. Uh, He is sweetening the deal with all these gifts, but he is being honest as well. And he's using these possessive pronouns to continue to communicate. I think he's trying to communicate that he's trying to make things right. Jacob calling himself Esau's servants. Jacob's servants calling themselves Esau's servants. Uh, This would have been a culturally appropriate way for Jacob to show a submissive spirit to Esau. But it didn't actually mean that Jacob literally was giving everything he owned to Esau. Otherwise, what was the point of a gift? If Jacob really did belong to Esau, and if everything he had was Esau's, then there's no reason to give a gift to Esau from amongst the possessions. Does that make sense? And so Esau is getting this barrage. One herd of animals after the other. Here's a gift. There's more servants. And Jacob is coming, and he's he's trying to be really nice. Trying to calm Esau down. And so this is what Esau is seeing over and over again. And we think, well, maybe Jacob's going to pull this off after all. And if Jacob thought that... If Jacob thought that he had anything to do with making this go well, he was about to learn otherwise. It's time to wrestle. Verse 22. Ding, ding, ding. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. Remember that night before he left the promised land? He was there all by himself. And God, God met him there. And now he's getting ready to go back in. And again, he's by himself through the night for a, for a moment. Verse 24 says, A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the dawn. All night until dawn. And by the way, this, this first portion of this account, when we see this being called the man, they look like, like one was prevailing over the other. It's dark outside, and we're getting to hear about this story from Jacob's perspective. And we start to learn more and more about who this is as the narrative goes along. Okay? So verse 25 says, When the man, as far as Jacob could tell, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Uh, That word touched means struck or injured. Remember, these guys wrestled all night long, and this man just all of a sudden decided it was time to show Jacob how strong he was, it seems. And he touched him, and with a single strike, it just blasts his hip out of socket. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that probably didn't feel very good. And then, verse 26, it says, he, the man, said, let go Let me go, for the day has broken. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I don't think there's any way they're still fighting at this point. His hip was out of joint. His hip was out of joint. The fight was over. Uh, It seems like Jacob learned that this man who he's wrestling was no ordinary man. Whatever that martial arts move that he just did, and then ding, and his lip falls out. What was that? This guy is something special. I just envisioned Jacob here lying on the ground, holding on to this man's ankles, wondering what's going on, but also writhing in pain, knowing that blessings come from God. Wondering who this might be. And he asks him to bless him, and he won't let go until he blesses him. And the man said to him, verse 27, What is your name? And he said, Jacob, Jacob. In that culture, learning the name of a man was like learning his essence. Jacob just got asked, Who are you? What kind of man are you? And Jacob's name, we've known, has come to be known as a Jacob, which means trickster. The trickster. Jacob here is acknowledging, This is who I am. It's like a confession. Jacob's just been asked, who are you? And he says, I'm a trickster. (laughs) But not anymore. Not anymore. Not when God fixes his grace on you. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's time for Jacob to know now who he really is. And it's not who he's really been all along. By God's grace this was going to happen all along from all eternity. Jacob, though, is about to receive a new identity uh, by God's grace in this moment. And it's something entirely different than what he was before. Verse 28, then he, the mystery man, (laughs) he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Who has the authority to do that, by the way? Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel. For, because you have striven or wrestled, you've been struggling with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob is on the ground in pain, right? How has he prevailed? Uh, Jacob's opponent, he wasn't talking about that wrestling match, was he? In fact, Jacob's opponent wasn't Jacob's opponent at all. And Jacob hasn't just been wrestling that night. As soon as we start hearing about who Jacob is in the book of Genesis, he is striving with, wrestling against God and man. So how is Jacob prevailing? Well, guess what the name Israel means? The name Israel means God fights. God fights. Why is Jacob winning? Because he was so clever? Because he figured out some code? Because he was just intellectually superior to his brother? No. Nope. Because he was less sinful? More (laughs) righteouser? No. No. Jacob is winning because God, the undefeated champion of the universe, God was fighting And God is going to win. Like all of us, Jacob wrestled against God. And God, in his grace, turned Jacob into a winner in Christ. Christ, our champion. And then Jacob asked in verse 29, Jacob says the same, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. He said, you shouldn't have done that, and I'm blessing you anyways. This verse makes it all the more clear, though, that Jacob has figured out who he's been wrestling with when he says, tell me your name. When God asked Jacob his name, he was asking who Jacob was, who he was. But in the ancient Near East tradition, to know or learn the name of a deity was to be, believed to enable you to call on it, to use it for your purposes. Once you knew its name, you could use it. Like when you have a genie's lamp and you can rub it and you get your three wishes, right? And so for a second here, Jacob may have thought in this moment that if he got the name, he might be able to get access to the needed power. I got some things I need done. And if there's a better way where I don't have to wait on you and I can call your name and you're going to be there, let's go that way. Then he says, why are you asking my name? (laughs) Why are you asking my name? Jacob has already been given the victory through God. God. And now he wanted to figure out a way to harness the power for himself at his disposal. God asks, why do you need to know my name? God is telling Jacob, you don't need to know my name to get me to fight for you. God is saying, I chose to fight for you before you ever knew who I was. Grace. That is grace. And then God blessed Jacob without ever saying his name. Jacob didn't get to call on God to give him the harnessed power because he already had it by God's gracious choice. And what's his name now? That trickster? Who is he now? God fights. That's a reminder for Jacob, isn't it? It is not me. God is the one who was the champion. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, that's what it means, face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. We know Jacob knows now who he was fighting with. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, which is just the same place, kind of a derivative of the same name they might have called it later on, but meaning the same thing, okay? So different word or letter there, same place. And he was limping, it says, because of his hip. So Jacob didn't get some good physical therapy the next day and just bounce back. That limp stuck, okay, a reminder to him. And therefore, to this day, meaning the, the day of the writing of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel. Here's an interesting thing: they don't eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Okay, that's just what they did. That's not a command for you today. Okay. Now, in a couple of weeks. That's end of chapter 32 in a couple of weeks We're going to read on into chapter 33 and jacob is going to meet esau We're thinking all about this now, but it hasn't happened yet. Has it and esau is a man's man. Remember? Esau loves to be outdoors and hunt and kill animals. He's a dude But jacob is no slouch either When he wanted to show rachel what was up. Remember that? They would move that stone away to water the, the flocks of the sheep, and, and it would take a group of guys to do that. And Jacob saw Rachel, and he, and he had some muscle in store waiting, didn't he? And he moved that stone all by himself. So, so Jacob is no slouch. So maybe this matchup is a fairly even one. Jacob versus Esau, a battle for the ages. Except for the fact that Jacob has just been up all night. He's already been wrestling. All night. Against God. Uh, Some people think perhaps this is a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't think that's the point of the story anyways, or worth arguing about. But he's been wrestling all night. And so he didn't get any sleep. He is exhausted as he gets up this morning to go see Esau. Oh, and his hip is out of socket. Dragging his foot along in pain as he goes. Jacob is probably feeling pretty weak at this point. He's got no strength left. He can't even walk straight without pain. He is in no shape to fight, which is exactly where God wants him to be. Because Jacob isn't Jacob anymore. Jacob is now Israel. And do you remember what God told the Apostle Paul? Uh, this is written down for us in 2 Corinthians 12. God said to Paul after Paul asked, take this weakness away, take this weakness away. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul said, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't think that's how we often think about our lives. When I am weak, then I am strong. And now Jacob, Israel, he's all kinds of weak right now, which means he's stronger than ever because God is fighting. Remember as Martin Luther wrote in the the song, a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. And it says, the right man is on our side. That's Jesus Christ. He is our champion. As we come to a close today, I want to make sure. I'm very clear here about how we can apply this passage today and how we ought not, okay? Okay. Because the tempting thing to do, I think, is to hear this amazing story about how God fights and how God is the undefeated champion and and how God was fighting for Jacob. And so that means that God is fighting my battles. And therefore, I'm going to ace that final exam. I'm never going to get sick. I am going to get rich. That crazy person at work is not going to hurt my reputation or steal the credit for what I accomplished. I'm really going to lose weight next year. The, the bills are going to get paid and I'm not going to have to face the consequences of spending my money prematurely on impulse. God fights my battles. Do you see the danger here? Do you see the danger? And are those things that God has promised to us? This, this message, in the name God fights, We need to know it is not a a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is not an invitation to rub the lamp and make a wish. It isn't an invitation that we would continue in sin, that grace may abound. What it is, is a really good reason to bow the knee. God is the Lord. He is our rightful master. It's a good reason for us as we think through these things, it's a good reason for us to tap out. If you're fighting against the Lord, if you are fighting against Him, if you are deciding and deliberating whether you think He's something that's best for you, that's a great fit for you, knowing what we do from this passage today, from the rest of God's Word, it would be a really good idea for you to surrender to the undefeated champion of the universe. He is the Lord. And he is good. He is good. And to fight against him is our destruction. It's a great reason, what we learn today is a great reason to pour into the word of God, to become a growing student of God's word, hearing what he has said, what he has promised, what he has done, and see exactly what his plan is for his creation, for his people, the church, and for you as a part of this body. Because we know God is going to win. God does fight. And he always has and he always will win. And by God's grace, Jacob has become part of God's master plan to win the fight against death and hell. And for his glory, for God's glory, Jacob won because God was fighting for him and for you and for me, and for himself. And Jacob, as we all know, he will survive this meeting with Esau. And Israel, the nation, will survive their slavery in Egypt. And David will survive Saul's attacks and become king. And and Israel, again, will return from their exile after being judged for their sin in Babylon. And Jesus, the Christ, he will take on flesh and live a sinless life. He will go to the cross. He will die in our place. He will rise from the dead. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. And Christ will come again to rule and to reign. You know why? Because God fights and God wins. And church, you're on the victory side. That hip out of socket that you might have? That trial, that tribulation that comes? That might feel like a whole lot of losing. And God has promised, even those things are used for your victory. When they saw our Savior hanging on the cross, that didn't look like victory, even to those who followed Christ those three years. And yet our enemy's head was crushed and our sin was paid for. God wins. We'll face various trials and tribulations, won't we? Even a loving father who disciplines us for our own sin. But Christian, remember, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And God's never giving up on you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ And Christ said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because who has overcome? Christ has overcome the world. Christ wins. And if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, if you are in Christ, you win with him and in him. And God's win, as he tells us in scripture, God's win is better then any win we might try to design and come with and substitute for what this says. Our wins that we design that are different from God's pale in comparison to the glory and joy and wonder of what God has decreed. God's better. Church, knowing all these things, let's eagerly follow Christ with our whole hearts. And even when things get hard, even when our hips are out of socket, let's walk with those limps together as a body, as a family, our humble badges of honor with, even in those weaknesses, all the more confidence, more than we've ever had before because we know that God is the one who is fighting. And God wins. And I'd ask if you're here today, You're here today and you've not stopped trying to fight for your own version of victory. That there is a way that you think is is better or maybe even a disinterest in the things that God has said and God has decreed. I, I hope and pray and I plead with you that you would see Jesus Christ, his death and the cross in our place, Absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And that you would come to know and love the Savior. That you would call on the Lord and be saved. Humbly bow the knee. And win this victory in Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I pray that you would put your faith in him and be saved today. And there may be people here today who maybe you you prayed and received Christ when you were younger. It's been a long time. God's faithful, isn't he? Jacob had a lot of ups and downs in his life. But God had fixed his grace on Jacob's life. And Jacob was going to change and grow. And maybe you're here today and you need to repent. Repent. And, and remember who you are because of who God has made you and is making you to be. Know we are promised in Scripture if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. That's a promise that God has made that you can call on and rely on and he will pull through. God is our victory, isn't he? Christ is our champion. Let's follow hard after him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these wonderful promises. You are so good to us. And you are good in grace, in mercy. This is not something that we compiled a list of righteous deeds and, and you thought, well, you're getting close enough. I'll finish you off. God, we come to you with our sin, hopeless, helpless, and we rely Entirely on your loving grace that you offer to us through Jesus Christ. And so, God, I do pray. I pray that our, our people here, our church, would be uh, just driven, stirred up in thanksgiving and worship and praise for who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing. I pray, Lord, that there would be those here today that today would be a, a great day for them, a big day for them, where they turn and, and, and pursue you again. Or perhaps for the first time, placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God, this has been a a fantastic morning. And we know that Christ has promised to continue to build his church. And we thank you for the ways that we see that happening even today. And ask that you would continue to do what you've promised to do through us, your people. Be glorified in us, Lord, we pray. And God, we thank you. For winning and for giving us a champion in Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in His name. Amen.